mean, the fact that we lost money for six straight months in 2017 never has happened in the history of Dunn. It's the first time we've ever lost money for six consecutive months. But in that period of time, we lost 5%. In trading at the you know, volatility levels that we trade at or the risk levels that we trade at, that's phenomenal. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Mario, welcome back to the uh, podcast. It's good to have you here. Now, you are one of the few people who have been back to Top Traders Unplugged, and it's been almost four years since our first conversation. So perhaps as a starting point and for the benefit of all the new listeners that have joined since, why don't you give a quick background to Don? But before you do that, of course, I have to be very open about it that I, of course, work for you and I work for Don, so there's no confusion. So I'm going to let Katie ask all the difficult questions today, but let's see how that how that goes. But give us a little bit of an update on, on Don and, and what we do. Well, thanks for having me. I'm a little disappointed that this is your first person that's come back the second time. I mean, <laughs> what I <laughs> I feel like I'm honored in some degree, but I guess since we have such a close working relationship, nobody should be surprised. The history of Dunn was formed in 1974 by William A. Dunn, which I would consider a pioneer in the trend space. He was doing trend following before before the regula regulator body was even formed. Uh, yeah. Some people think of him as being one of the turtles, which is a misconception. Uh, Bill was not part of the turtles. He was doing his research independently of that group. He and many did, years before that group. Quite a few years before. And you know, the reality was Bill had no idea that anybody else was even working in the space. Uh, he was in a vacuum, per se. His first large allocation came from a group who had allocated to other people that were in trend following. They understood that it worked. Bill did not realize that they had allocated to other people like him. He thought he was the only person. And, and to tell the truth, I don't know that he was completely confident that it worked. Other than the fact that when he came out of the shoot, he lost 20% right off the bat. <laughs> so he must have had some confidence level. Right. Uh, the fund was originally started with friends and family, mm -hmm. co-workers, basically. He was a defense contractor, PhD engineer, physics by trade. And when he developed the system, he could not find money to trade it. And the people that he worked with had confidence in him, and they approached him about an idea that if they were able to put the money together between them, would he be willing to trade it? And he said, yeah. 
then he promptly lost 20%. <laughs> but as we all know, the story ends well. Sure. And we're now well over a billion dollars in assets, and we're still trading the WMA strategy. Uh, it's gone through a number of improvements through the years. The actual algorithm is still in play, uh, but we've augmented that with a number of other algorithms because uh, I'm a huge proponent of uncorrelated correlated revenue streams. So there's different ways to approach trend following, and our idea is if we approach it enough ways, we end up being able to reduce the risk and increase the return and, and generate better risk risk-adjusted returns. So, uh, Marty, how, how? I'm just curious. How did you? What was your path? <laughs> and so, how did you? How, how do you come into this story? I probably have a, a different path than most anybody else in the industry because I'm a CPA by trade. I worked for a CPA firm in Vienna, Virginia, which just happens to be the same area that Bill formed Dunn Capital. And his next door neighbor was an accountant. And when Bill decided that he needed to get some advice on how to set up his his statements and do his tax and, and track everything, he went to his next door neighbor who helped him. That next door neighbor was a partner in a CPA firm that I went to work for. And the first job when I went to work there was they sent me to Florida to work on the audit team for the Dunn Funds. And that's where I met Bill. And several years later, I became a partner in the firm. After we had completed the audits that year, Bill approached me about coming to work at Dunn. And uh, long story short, here I am today, president of Dunn Capital and the owner of Dunn. And you know, Bill and I have always had a very close relationship, even when I was at the accounting firm, because I handled a lot of his personal work also. And then when I came to Dunn, I kind of wore two hats, not only working with the company, but also handling a lot of Bill's family office things. So we worked closely together. So it was kind of a natural fit to kind of step into the role. Uh, we had to do something. We had several, you know, 20 employees that what was going to happen if we closed down Dunn. So we wanted to keep it running and we wanted to keep the legacy alive. I think we're probably the, I mean, there's arguments back and forth, who's the oldest trend follower or the oldest managed futures product in the industry, but I think we're, we're, we're right there. Absolutely. And, and I'm kind of wondering a little bit, sort of being in this industry for such a long time, what are some of the key lessons that you've that you may have learned that are different from where you came from? And I'm not thinking necessarily of trading methods or anything like that, but it is a little bit of a unique industry. It's a little bit of a unique business. Is there anything or running a business, managing people, culture, whatever it might be, but is there some key lessons that you've found to be really important in order to achieve the success that you've achieved? Well, let me lead off by, you know, I've always felt like Bill was my mentor. Right. And one of the, most of the key things about what we do is things I've learned from Bill. And some of them aren't even accepted in the industry for say. For instance, you know, we are extremely client-centric. And Bill always said that he was on the same side of the table as the client. He never wanted to be in a 
area of conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't, and where it comes out is in the management fee. The fact that Bill wanted to have a zero management fee and only be incentive-based, feeling that if his clients made money, he got paid. Mm -hmm. If his clients didn't make money, we weren't getting paid. That's probably the first thing. The other thing is, from a business standpoint, Bill and I are true believers that it's the people that makes the business. It's, it's, yeah, you have to have an algorithm and you have to have the technology behind it, but it doesn't work without the people. And, you know, the people do the research, the people do the implementation, the people interact with the clients, and you're only as good as your weakest link in the firm. So people are really important to us. And I don't think people understand in a firm how much the dynamic can change when you bring in new people. And we spend a lot of time researching, per se, people that we bring into the firm. And, you know, it's a long process. It's like it's kind of like you develop a relationship outside of the firm. And when you go to look for something or somebody becomes available, whether you have a have any job for them, per se, but you just bring them into the fold because you know at some point they're going to add value. We bring people in and we say, okay, you figure out how to add value to Dunn. You know, if you can't add value, we're all happy. And if you can't, then it didn't work out. And, you know, you can move on and find something else to do. And it's it's interesting to me that you that you make this point still in today's world because I think a lot of people look at our industry, and certainly if you read the papers where it's all about quants, it's all about the technology, it's all about the algorithms that are taking over Wall Street and all the headlines you see. So I think sometimes we can all maybe forget that there is a person behind all of this. And in some ways, I, th I think it's fair to say that we do things maybe a little bit the old-fashioned way in certain things when it comes to execution, et cetera. So you kind of keep... Well, I think people forget that the industry is a people-oriented industry. I mean, quants are one thing, but the real world is important in what we do. You know, I, I've seen quants that will develop systems and they will have products in that system that you can't trade. I mean... They'll be trading raw milk or lumber or, you know, some of these things that the reality of the world is you can't trade that in any kind of size. So I think it's important to have people that understand the industry we work in on the research side. And then on the execution side, I just feel a lot more comfortable knowing that there's a person that's putting their eyes on a trade before a trade gets executed. Now, they can use all the modern methodologies as tools to execute that trade. But I want somebody to look at it and go, yeah, this makes sense, and and then proceed to execute it. And I, and I like the fact that they can use all the different tools at their disposal on any given trade. Instead of just having it automatically picking an algorithm, automatically going to the market and, and executing the trade. Our research has found that by using systematic execution, automated execution, algorithmic, that you're basically controlling your slippage. You know what your slippage is, and you know you're going to have slippage. 
and it's going to be about a half a point, depending on how much AUM you're trying to trade. By using traders and their expertise, there's going to be times when I'm going to get slippage that's going to be larger than that. But there's also going to be times when I have positive slippage. What we found is a net-net, it's zero to positive. So it adds value to the firm. And my, my traders are highly experienced. They've been around for a long time. We run a 24-hour desk. Some people are surprised by the number of traders we have as a firm. But uh, you got three shifts that have to be manned six days a week. So you got to have manpower. Marty, what is one of the things that you would say that people tend to underestimate about Dunn? I mean, you guys have been around for a long time. What is sort of one of the things that you think that people would should know and sort of understand about your firm to kind of understand your some of your edge? Well, I think... One thing is people underestimate our research capability. I mean, it, it was, small firms are naturally not going to have as many people in research. Uh, you see the big firms, and they will advertise that they have 100 PhDs, and they have this huge research machine. You lose something in the disconnect of having that many people in research. One of the things Roberto Osorio, who's the head of our research department, is very proud of this, is the fact that he codes. So a lot of firms, what happens is the research guys turn over the coding to software developers and they say, oh, this is what I want. Well, there's something gets lost in the transition. Lack of transparency in the process. Oh, absolutely. And the fact that you know, Roberto could code what he wants. And then if we want to have somebody recoded in a more streamlined basis, at least we have a baseline and we can compare the two codes and make sure everything's operating the same. That has, in our view, that adds value. Uh, the other thing, just because you have a small number of people, it's the quality of the work, not the quantity of the work per se. The way I feel about it sometimes is it's frustrating because there's a lot of things in the queue that we like to look at that we don't have the resources to look at. And someday maybe we'll have more and more people. But I also find that if you got too many projects going at one time, things kind of get, uh, it, it just gets cluttered. Complexity increases a lot, I the imagine. The complexity does increase. And our business is such that you know, the tools we have today, as opposed to 15, 20 years ago, it's already a complex business. The, the things we're doing from a risk management standpoint and the timelessness of data today and the efficiencies are leaps and bounds above what was being done in the past, which I think is what makes the industry better. And we've been able to do some things that I think other firms haven't been able to do. It's hard for me to talk about what other people are doing because I don't have the time, the energy to delve into other programs and figure out what it is they're doing that's different than us. But I do believe that our adaptive risk profile has set us apart. I have to believe that because it just doesn't make sense that our risk return or sharp ratio uh, has improved year after year after year over the last 10 years 
in comparison to the industry. The, the industry's risk-adjusted returns have gone down since the credit crisis, and ours have been going up. And a lot of that has to do with you know several things that we've implemented more recently. But I would say the most significant, at least over the last year, was the ARP, which is the adaptive risk profile. I mean, the fact that we lost money for six straight months in 2017 never has happened in the history of Dunn. That's the first time we've ever lost money for six consecutive months. But in that period of time, we lost 5%. In trading at the you know, volatility levels that we trade at or the risk levels that we trade at, that's phenomenal. And I, I would venture to say that people that trade at much less uh, volatility than we did did not fare as well as we did during that period of time. And that's exactly what we were expecting with the research. And it's proved that it's worked. So I guess it's it's smarter not, you know, work smarter, don't work, you know, more. Right, yeah. Yeah. Now, you alluded to you've been with Don for a long time. In fact, you've been with Don for, for more than 20 years. Um, but still, of course, that's only less than half the time of the, the firm history. What would you say has, and how has Don changed during the time that you've been there? Well, you also understand that I worked with Bill and Dunn for a number of years before I came to work. So Absolutely, it's been yeah. over 25, yeah. almost 30 years yeah. that we've worked together. Yeah. You know, how has it changed? We've become more sophisticated. We've uh, strengthened the research into the business. We've started reaching out to uh, investors, allocators, trying to get our story out but more importantly, trying to educate the investment public or the investment community. Bill's adage was, if people were smart enough, they would find us. If they weren't smart enough to find us, I don't want them as an investor. Okay, that's, you know, that's very... That's one view. <laughs> yeah, very ideal. I, I, I think he wasn't alone with that. The world's yeah, changed. Yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah. It, it was a wild world yeah. back then, and I yeah. think these guys were all independent guys, and they all kind of viewed it the same way. But, you know, there are other firms, especially in the last 20 years, who have reached out, and they've basically accumulated all the assets in the industry. And, and if you aren't proactive, if you aren't working to educate the public about what we do. You know, my feeling is I don't have to market, per se. I don't have to be salesy. I think Dunn's mission is to educate people. And once people are educated, they'll see the value in what we do. And I think our performance will stand on its own and, and we'll get our share of assets. We're not for everybody. And I don't want to be for everybody. But I feel like, you know, we... We embrace investors who look at this space as a core asset holding. They understand how correlations interact with their portfolios and the value of correlations. And they're going to be long-term investors. We don't want hot money. We aren't looking for people that are timing the space. We're looking at people that understand why there's value in investing in this space. And they're going to keep it. For exactly. long terms of Right, time. because that's the other secret, right? The, the way to really get the benefit of trend following in particular is to have the long-term horizon. Uh, people, 
so this is what I've learned in the in the most recent past. Uh, we launched a forty act fund with Aero Funds, and I have spent more and more time in front of RIAs. And there's a couple lessons I've learned. One is people equate zero correlation with negative correlation. They don't understand the difference per se. And I tried to explain that, you know, zero correlation, all that means is when you see what your stock portfolio did today, you can't make any reference on what we did. That's zero correlation. A lot of people say, oh, it's zero correlated. My stocks went down. You should have gone up. Well, no. There's no correlation. There's no connection between the two. And it's a big problem because most investors in the mutual fund space can watch the nightly news and know exactly what each of their portfolio items, you know, everything that they're invested in did, except for managed futures. They're like, how how could you not make money today? Or how how were you able to make money when nobody, you know? I had a question too. I mean, one of the biggest challenges we've had in the industry has been return dispersion for investors too, is that you have one fund up, another fund down. It seems that there's a lot of difference in terms of how, Performance has not been very consistent across managers in the space, and that creates a lot of confusion for the investors. How how has your experience been with this? Have you have you encountered some? Do you have some thoughts about how Dunn sees that and how you have fared in this sort of change well, in the industry? And what do you think drives it? So, gee whiz, Katie, you're the expert in this area. <laughs> you're the one that should know these answers. <laughs> this is my opinion. Okay, which you can I want tell your me opinion. Whether you agree with my opinion or not, because I think it really has to do with time periods that people are looking at. There's always a sweet spot for your period of time you're looking back over. Uh, I think one of the things that's worked well for Dunn is we don't put any restrictions on what's available to the program from a time constraint. I mean, it can go as short as a week and as long as four or five years if it chooses that. Now, the parameter selection process is automated. It happens uh, weekly, but but it doesn't matter that it happens. It, like, it's not imperative that it happens each week. We can go 18 months without any real difference in return. So... It's not sensitive to the parameters. But I think it's important that you allow the system to evolve between shorter time periods and longer time periods, given whatever the investment environment is. That's the only reason I can see why, well, one of the many reasons why I think we've been able to manage this environment well. I mean, between the ARP, between the uncorrelated revenue streams that we have, and you know, adaptive nature of our system, uh, we have an exit strategy that has been implemented over the last five to seven years. All these things have made us better. Yeah, I mean, it's been a very, I mean, if you think about it, the, the reason I'm interested is, I mean, you've done very well for your investors over the last few years, and it has been very challenging. I oh, mean, it's quantitative been, easing, you know, very low trends. I mean, most difficult environments that I have ever seen in what we do. I mean, <laughs> 
I, I thought this was going to be easy. And, and you look at the post-financial uh, crisis, and it has just been a hard road for trend-following systematic managers. And, and what's happened is the central banks have created this environment where everything is correlated across all the markets. So in reality, I ask myself, do we have diversity? You know, what What is diversity? So people are investing in their stock portfolios. They go to a mutual fund. Oh, we're a diverse mutual fund. We have 150 holdings. Uh, nobody has more than 2% of the AUM, you know, all these stock names. Pretty diverse, right? Uh, I, I would proposition no. Because if all those stocks are highly correlated, aren't you truly only invested in one thing? And that's the same thing that happens in the managed future space when all the markets become correlated. It's a lot harder for our markets to become correlated because, you know, it's the softs, it's the energies, it's the metals, it's the currencies, it's the interest rates, it's bonds, it's equities across all geographical areas. But after the financial crisis and the central banks were all working in tandem, yeah, those markets became very highly correlated. That is the most difficult time for us to make money is high correlation, low volatility. You know, and, and there's no trends. Everything's trading sideways. Because of low volatility, people tend to want to put more positions on because they got to get to their risk targets. This is what started our research on the adaptive risk portfolio because that doesn't make sense to do that. So, you know, we've now incorporated that into our model so that we don't do things that don't make sense. The thing that's the most encouraging that we've seen the last quarter of the year and is exciting to me is the correlation matrix is broken down. Everything's starting to break apart. You're starting to see European bonds move differently than U.S. bonds. Asia moves different than the rest of the world. These give us opportunities to make money. And you know, all we need is opportunities, and the winners are always going to outweigh. The winners are big. The losers are small. That's the whole point of trend following. I think there's two really interesting observations here. One is, you know, and, and I don't know that people really know that, but since 1990, when the B-Top 50 index was started to be uh, computed, there are only seven years where it's down. But six of those seven years has been since 2009 when quantitative easing started. So yeah. it's a very clear correlation to exactly your point. And of course, since Katie is here, the, the queen of divergent, convergent strategy, I mean, I'd love to hear your opinion as well to what Marty says about, you know, what we as trend followers really need. I mean... Well, I mean, Marty's exactly right, is that high correlation, low vol is a challenging environment, but we can also add the fact that interest rates have been very low too. So we haven't had the carry moving directionally a lot of assets. So, you know, he's exactly right in that they're, you know, if you're focusing on being adaptive to those environments and adjusting your risk and implementing that into your process, that that is really sort of trying to think proactively on how you can handle those type of different environments without sort of just blindly saying, this is a model that worked, let's execute it. Um, so it sounds like that's sort of the direction you guys went yeah, and that you're looking you, at adaptive risk and sort of better thinking about correlation. And When you, you hit on it, I mean, 
I, I hate to admit it, and I think anybody in our space hates to admit it, but you know, a lot of the returns back in the 70s and 80s were driven off of interest rate. It was I mean, let's face it. Up to 18%. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so. when 60% of your assets are held in cash at our earning interest, it could be quite a you know nice little hurdle. Now, I will tell you from Dunn's perspective, we've always excluded that in any of our model development. So, you know, we're okay working in a zero interest rate environment. You know, all the back testing we do and the out-of-sample testing that we do and the development of our systems are assuming basically a zero rate environment. We, we don't plan for any money to be made on our excess cash. Uh, that doesn't mean we don't look at, uh, you know, clearly futures are more dynamic in the interest rate environment of the older days. The other adage is that you know, managed futures can't make money in a rising interest rate environment. Well, I, I, that just doesn't make any sense to me. And I've heard people, you know, that they will look at me and say, well, you're crazy. I mean, you know, don't, doesn't it make sense to you? It's obvious. Well, no, because futures prices build interest rate into it. It's a very simple concept. It's saying in the future, the bond price is going to go up or down by this much based on the projected interest rates. And either the interest rates move the way you expect it or they don't. And if they don't, then the price of the future moves differently than what was projected. <laughs> You know, people try to make it too complicated sometimes and start doing this evaluation of interest rates and how you should be, oh, interest rates are going up, you should be short bonds. Well, no. If interest rates don't go up as fast as you think they're going to go up, then you should be long bonds because that's the right trade. And, uh, you know, our system is still holding. All, all the European bonds are still long. We've gotten short the U.S. bonds. And the other thing that we've seen in looking at our simulations and our out-of-sample data in our live real trading is we never take positions on the short side as strong as the long side positions. It just doesn't happen. And I think it's because people's perceptions about interest rate are off-kilter, you know. So uh, I, think, I think people always think interest rates are going to go up faster than they do. They never go up as fast as people think. They're afraid they're going to go up faster. Than yeah, I mean, yeah. I, and I think actually <laughs> also when you do uh, research and, and if you look at certainly the simpler trend-following systems, you know, what you do realize, and this could be tied into the 30-year interest rate cycle we've had, but when you do that, actually 85 or 90% of the returns come from long-sided trades, whether that's because it's easier to capture, because short-sided trades can turn very quickly, this and that. So, I mean, but but I agree with Marty that there shouldn't be any concern that there is a particular environment where trend-following doesn't work, unless there are no trends, of course. Right. Well, so it, to me, it makes perfect sense why that most of the trends are on the long side. It's inflation. I mean, the economy is always growing. Prices are always growing. Everything is going up. It just doesn't go up in a straight line. Anybody? 
Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.